want to start with a quotation from Chuang Tzu, who said, There was a person so displeased by the sight of their own shadow and so displeased with their own footsteps that they determined to get rid of both. The method they hit upon was to run away from them, so they got up and ran. But every time they put their foot down, there was another step, while their shadow kept up with them without the slightest difficulty. They attributed the failure to the fact that they were not running fast enough. So they ran faster and faster without stopping till they finally dropped dead. They failed to realize that if they merely stepped into the shade, the shadow would vanish. And if they sat down and stayed still, there would be no more footsteps. I think that exemplifies in many ways the the spirit of meditation practice when we make that choice to be still when we have the courage to make that choice rather than running away, rather than running away obsessively, we actually choose to establish a relationship with what is. And what we discover in that process is really everything. We discover everything a human being can want and know and feel and fear. It's in the very essence of this practice that we don't hide from these various factors that come up in our minds. We don't cling to the ones that are pleasant. We don't condemn the ones that are unpleasant. And we recognize that everything is really a part of of the mix of discovery. It's often very funny, I think, sitting up here when I'm leading a sitting or one of us is leading a sitting Because looking out, there's often the impression that one is looking out on a sea of tranquility. (laughs) You just look so calm and quiet and peaceful. But I know, as we all know, that sometimes it's that way and sometimes it is just absolutely riotous. There's a lot of turbulence There's a lot of thinking, there's a lot of planning, there's all kinds of things going on, just in the natural course of events. I don't know if you've ever seen the television show Dharma and Greg. Well, Dharma, of course, is the Sanskrit word for the Buddhist teaching or for the truth of things, and so I felt almost a professional obligation to watch it. (laughs) So I watched it just a couple of times, and Dharma, for those of you who've never seen it, is a, a sort of hippie type. I think maybe a yoga teacher or something like that, and Greg is her her much straighter husband. And in the one episode I saw, Dharma decides to teach Greg how to meditate. So she teaches him how to meditate, and then she leaves the apartment. And the camera follows Dharma on her way through her day, entertaining these lovely fantasies of Greg sitting in bliss, sitting in repose, how much he's enjoying his meditation session, And then she comes home, and he's absolutely frantic. She said, what happened? And he said, I couldn't stop thinking. I just kept thinking, which long-distance carrier should I switch to? (laughs) And then he said, and I kept thinking, how fast do you have to travel to always stay in the sun? And it was like that. Once I actually, I told that story, and I got all these notes back from people telling me how fast you have to travel in order to always stay in the sun, so I, I want to add the addendum that I actually don't care, <laughs> you know, 
that was his issue, it was not my issue. But, and don't think about it, it's not important. You know, but really, you know, it seems like it's this majestic experience. And inside, you're thinking, you know, should I, do with, should I stay with Sprint? Should I go to AT&T? And, you know, and that is, is sometimes the way it is. The Buddha talked about it in classical terms as the five hindrances, very common states that arise during meditation practice. They're hindrances not because they're, they're bad or crummy states, but because when we are lost in them, when we identify with them, then they hinder our sense of connection to ourselves, to the moment. They have the function of clouding our vision or distorting our vision in some way, having us forget something that we might well try to remember. Susan talked about two of the classical hindrances last night, as sleepiness and restlessness. So I want to emphasize today the other three, which are grasping, aversion, and doubt. But first I want to talk about the context within which we hold them, because that's really the context within which we hold all things. As I think was mentioned in the, in the earlier retreat, the Metta Course, the Buddha once said something that I find quite extraordinary when he said, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. He said, the mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. These visiting forces, the, the normal translation for that or the conventional translation for that is defilement which is a little bit tricky as a word because it sounds so mid-Victorian and kind of judgmental. The literal word in Pali is kalesa, which means torment of the mind. It's because of these visiting forces that we suffer. And what is pivotal in that statement is the idea that these forces are just visiting. They are not who we actually are. They are not inherent to our being. They're adventitious. They arise due to conditions. That's when jealousy comes and greed and hatred and fear arising out of conditions. Sometimes I get this image contemplating that of myself happily at home, minding my own business, perfectly content, and there's a knock at the door. So I get up, I go open the door, and there's greed or there's jealousy or something like that. And I say, oh, welcome home. It's like I forget who actually lives there. And so there's this complete abdication. Sometimes, of course, we do the opposite. We are so ashamed and so upset, so distraught, so angry at the arising of these visitors, their arrival. That when we get up, we go, we open the door, and we desperately try to shut the door against them, thinking that will vanquish them, that will make them go away. But unfortunately, that tends to not work. And so that force, the jealousy, the greed, whatever it might be, will sneak in through the window, come in through the chimney, somehow 
it will, it will re-arrive. A good deal of meditation practice in terms of skills is really learning how to greet that state and let it go so that we are opening the door with awareness, with wisdom, with understanding, and with compassion. Those visitors might come a lot. They might come an awful lot. They might come incessantly, but that's okay. That is not something actually we can control. What we need to do is learn to trust who actually lives here, actually come closer to that deeper essence of our being and know how to let go. I once I had a friend who'd invited somebody here to the States from Asia, and when I saw this friend, I said, oh, you know, how's it going? How long is your guest going to stay? And this person's eyes got really big, just enormous, and he said, He's staying two or three years. He didn't tell me that when I invited him. (laughs) You know, sometimes it's like that. (laughs) You hear that knock on the door, and it's anger, fear, and guilt, and greed. and, And if you say welcome, they might actually stay a while. And so we learn how how better to deal with all of those forces. The Buddha also said, and this is the second visionary statement, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. And and that's a difficult thing to understand as well. Actually, I have a friend, a very witty friend, um, who said to me that suffering and the end of suffering aren't one thing, that's two things. But sometimes they are one thing, because it's the more complete and open-hearted acknowledgement of suffering that does bring us to the end of suffering. It's not that this is a, you know, a kind of depressing um, look at the world, although sometimes misinterpreted, that's what it becomes. I remember once I was reading an article about Buddhism in The New Yorker, and it said, According to the Buddha, the purpose of life is to suffer. (laughs) And I thought, that's really, really depressing. (laughs) But I teach one thing and one thing only that is suffering, and the end of suffering is a very different thing. Usually when we talk about this, it's in terms of the many truths that are in our world, in ourselves, and outside of ourselves that are hidden, that are denied, the ways that we are afraid to look at somebody else's pain because we think it's going to detract from our own happiness. We think we need to protect ourselves in some way. The way we're afraid to look at our own because we think it means that we're defective in some fashion. So to say that I teach one thing and one thing only that is suffering and the end of suffering means turning that around. It means opening. It means clear seeing. It means open-heartedness that will free us from not having to run all the time. But it also has another meaning, and that's more in the sense of almost like a matrix within which we can view the things of life. We can view ourselves and view others. You know, when we look at ourselves and we see those visiting forces, we see certain mind states, emotions, habits, patterns, ruts, ways of being that 
bring suffering to ourselves, that bring pain to others, rather than seeing those states as bad and wrong and evil and ourselves as as unworthy of love because of those terrible things that are arising within us, we can see them as states of suffering. That's actually the translation that we can make when we look at our fear, we look at our anger, we look at our jealousy, our guilt, all of that. These are the habits that bring suffering. And just as we look at ourselves in that way, we can look at others in that way. These constellations, these habits, these conditions that create suffering or the end of suffering. When we're connected, we're full of understanding, we're full of compassion. Those are the very states that create the end of suffering. And those are the things we can rejoice in, whether within ourselves or in others. And when we see the difficult states, I mean, imagine just for a moment a mind that isn't judging, that isn't criticizing, that isn't seeing the world in terms of good and bad, but is seeing suffering and the end of suffering. It doesn't mean that we lose any sense of discriminating wisdom and and we don't understand the difference. We do understand the difference. But if we were looking at our fear, for example, as a state of suffering, then rather than despising ourselves for it, being ashamed of it, being angry about it, feeling we need to hide it, we need to reject it, just naturally we would have a sense of compassion. That would be a pretty incredible way to view ourselves and to begin to view the world. It's like when we love somebody very much, like a child, for example, and we see that child reaching toward a fire or a flame. Now, we might take very strong action to try to change that situation, but the action, as we see this being moving towards suffering, is born out of compassion. It's not that we're condemning the child and we don't, we don't like them anymore, that we're rejecting them. It is a state of compassion that can lead to very forceful action, but from a very different place. So that's an extremely important translation to begin to make as we look at our own experience. And then the third of the visionary statements of the Buddha is that very simple one, that all beings want to be happy. If we were to look very deep inside some of the most twisted, distorted actions we take, any one of us, we would see that same urge toward happiness, toward feeling an urge to to feel at home in this body and this mind, to have some sense of home in this life, to feel like we're part of something greater than our limited sense, our usually limited sense of who we are. It's in there, that urge toward happiness. And so we can look also with with that kind of understanding and that kind of tenderness as we see the play of our own minds. The Buddha described this path in a way to his students by saying, abandon that which is unskillful, 
the unskillful factors of our minds are those things that cause suffering. Abandon that which is unskillful. You can abandon the unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If abandoning the unskillful were to bring you harm or bring you suffering, I would not ask you to do it. But because it brings you happiness and freedom, I do ask you to do it. He then went on to say, cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. If you could not cultivate the good, I would not ask you to do it. In fact, we can do it. That's our potential as human beings. We can abandon the unskillful, not out of fear for those states or or contempt for those states or for ourselves, for having them visit, but out of the greatest love for ourselves, honoring and respecting our wish to be truly happy, to be deeply happy, and out of the confidence that we can be happy, we can grow. Just as the Buddha said, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. And we certainly abandon the unskillful and we cultivate the good out of very great love for others as well. To let go of that which brings harm, not to follow it out. We let go in a way like dropping a burden which has been weighing us down because we're carrying around things that we don't actually need. And that's what a path is. It's that It's that understanding based on our own sensitivity, our own awareness of the nature of our experience and what we want to let go of, what we want to cultivate for our own sake, for the sake of all beings. And actually, I like the word abandon. It's a little bit unusual, a word for this, but I like it because I think that the truth is we are holding on very tightly to certain things. And so to abandon them doesn't mean to hurl them away in disgust or, or to shove them or push at them. It means to loosen the grip, to relax, to settle back into some more natural place of peace. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, say, in a retreat where you might be trying to be mindful through different daily activities and you start paying attention to times that you usually aren't paying any attention, like brushing your teeth or something like that. Sometimes it's just amazing, because if we pay attention to ourselves doing something like brushing our teeth, it's like suddenly we realize we have a grip on that toothpaste, on that toothbrush, I mean, like it's a jackhammer, you know, about to leap out of our hands and like sever our head, and we're holding onto it with this intensity of force. And we just relax. Sometimes that's how we're greeting life. You know, it's, it's with that kind of intense effort and holding and pressure and tension. It's only because we become aware of it that we can relax. We can let go. We can see what will unfold. I like the word abandon because of that sense of coming back to stillness, coming back to peace, letting go of that grip. And because I think it implies some of the delight of letting go, of, of being free, of having a choice as to what we will follow and what we won't. So that's the, it's really a revolutionary context that we are holding this understanding in as we explore all these various experiences inside. Sometimes what we see is sleepiness. Sometimes what we see is restlessness. 
Sometimes what we see is the other of the hindrances, the first in the classical list, which is grasping or, or desire or attachment or greed. It's when our minds stick to something and they just don't want to let go. It's like a feeling of enchantment. And again, it's not that this feeling is bad or wrong in some way, but it brings so much suffering. We see that in the world around us so clearly, how when we're filled with greed of some kind, then we get a kind of tunnel vision where our sense of happiness is very small. It's defined in really keeping control over the flow of life by having a person, an object, be there in a certain way and never change. Well, how much does that happen in life? Not very much. Mostly we are so fixated on the objects that we want, whether it's a person or an actual thing, and in that state of of attachment, the person becomes like an object, that we don't pay much attention to the feeling itself of that kind of collapse of attention where there might be so much available to us, so much to be grateful for, so much present, but we can't see it because our minds have shrunk, very small. It's such a feeling of release to open up. It doesn't mean that we don't want anything ever or that we pretend we don't want anything ever. It means that we have the spaciousness and the open-heartedness to see the desire itself without letting it define our world. Maybe my favorite example of this was um, the Dalai Lama. Uh, This time when Joseph and I were at a Buddhist Christian conference uh, in Kentucky at Gethsemane Monastery, which had been Thomas Merton's monastery, And it was, um, it was a very kind of august occasion uh, with a lot of dignitaries, and it was actually being filmed um, for PBS. And the Dalai Lama had arrived there early in the day, been given a tour of the monastery, which supports itself through the production of cheese and fruitcake. So when he began his opening statement, which was in this very kind of Um, dignified, hallowed hall kind of thing. Uh, He started out by giving a very uh, sort of proper introductory set of remarks, and then he just veered into this comment, and he said, you know, I really enjoyed my tour today. It was so wonderful, he said, but, and I was so impressed that the monks can support themselves through the manufacturing of cheese and fruitcake, and he said, but you know, somebody gave me a piece of cheese and nobody gave me any fruitcake. And he said, I really wanted a piece of fruitcake. And, and he laughed really loud. And he went, ha, 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 so unfortunate. Nobody gave me any fruitcake. I really wanted some fruitcake. And, and I was sitting there, actually, and I, I leaned over and I said to a bishop, do you think you could get him a piece of cake? That would be very nice. And of course, it wasn't that his deepest desire was to have that fruitcake and his happiness was dependent on it being just so and delivered properly and in time. And 
But if anything, his deepest happiness was more in his childlike ability to be able to admit it, to laugh at himself, to, to say all of that in front of dignitaries from two different religions and a television audience. You know, it's that kind of simplicity. Rather than feeling we're in competition all the time, that other people, other things, other events are intruding on our attainment of what we want. The problem, of course, is not, is not enjoying things, which is a fantastic thing and very fortunate, very, very fortunate to, to have a love of life and an experience that, um, that is very rich and connected with all the different elements of life. The problem is that kind of effort to control, to maintain, to preserve, to possess, so that we're trying to keep life from moving, life from changing. The Buddha had a very kind of homey example for that. He said, if you try to hold on tight to a revolving wheel, at some point in the cycle, you're bound to get run over. It's just like that. I remember in my early meditation practice, not in the, the very, very beginning, but um, when everything was so very difficult, but after some time when my experience became much more pleasant and I would have these sittings where I would feel these very lovely sensations in my body. I felt like I was floating in the air and very serene and peaceful mind states. And I would sit there and fantasize, well, you know, in another five years, I'll go back to New York and I'll be in exactly this same state. I'll be floating down the streets of Manhattan and I'll be wearing my white sari and I'll have a beatific smile on my face and, because this is certainly never going to change. You know, and then what would happen? You know, 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, my knees would start hurting, my back would start hurting, or I'd get sleepy or I'd get bored or I'd get restless. It all changed. But every time it changed, I felt like I'd done something wrong. And I thought, you know, why did I breathe so hard? Or why didn't I breathe harder? Or why did I let my eyelid flicker? Or, you know, I ruined it. It went away. But really it changed because everything changes. Everything's in a state of constant flux. That's the movement of life itself. There's no way that we can successfully hold on or cling to all of our pleasant experiences. And so then we fall into resentment. We resent other people, other experiences as obstructions to our gratification. We resent the flow of life. We feel betrayed because life moves, because it changes. We're in competition for things that we can't define. Our happiness seems to be contained in this limited objects, so we have to fight for it. But really, it's not limited at all. One of my favorite images in uh, trying to explain that sense of fixation and the contrast um, had to do with this Tibetan teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, who was teaching a class one day, and he he took a large white sheet of paper. Just in the very center of it, he drew this kind of floppy V-shaped object. Then he held it up in front of the class and he said, what's this a picture of? And apparently, everybody in the class said, 
oh, that's a picture of a bird. And then he said, no, it's not. It's a picture of the sky with a bird flying through it. When our vision narrows, it constricts, we have that small sense of possibility that's called fixation. To let go of the fixation, to open up to the sky, doesn't mean that we don't see the bird. It doesn't mean we don't enjoy what we are experiencing. It means we're not adding that extra thing, which is really born out of fear and the effort to control. That kind of tremendous craving or grasping leads to a lot of suffering because of two things. One is the seeking quality, which is endless. You know, you sit here and you think, if only, if only I brought another sweater, you know, it would be a completely different experience. (laughs) If only I hadn't brought so many sweaters, (laughs) I wouldn't feel like such a fool for having so much luggage. It would be a really much better experience. If only, you know, and we just think and we think and we think and that kind of endless seeking for a better state. And the other aspect of it is is that guarding quality where something wonderful happens and we feel like we have to hold on to it, which we never can successfully. And so we learn to see the nature of desire itself, not to be so lost in the object And that, of course, is very amusing on retreat anyway, because if you started out, you know, if you came in the door and thought, if only I had a new car, then I would be perfectly happy. After three days here, it's probably, if only I had another pair of socks, (laughs) I would be really, really, really happy, finally and forever. You know, the objects change, but that feeling is what we need to understand. And so we turn our attention back to the feeling. We learn to see its nature so that we needn't be embroiled in it and we also don't need to fight it. We can see it in its own nature as a visitor, something passing through. We can see its suffering nature when we're caught in it. And we see what happens when we let go of it. Because really, as we let go of attachment, what happens in that much bigger sense of spaciousness is love. We move out of that feeling of wanting to be in control, that medium of exchange. Well, I'll be here for you as long as, you know, the following 15 conditions are met. And we open. What happens as we open is love. It's, it's a much purer connection. That's what we find in the boundlessness. So that's the first of the hindrances, is desire. The second is aversion, which means anger and fear. And interestingly enough, in the Buddhist psychology, these are exactly the same mind state in two different forms. The anger is the outflowing, energized form, and the fear is the imploding, frozen, held-in form of the same state, which means that we're striking out against what's happening. We're wanting to separate from it. We're defining our experience as unbearable. 
We're saying, I don't want this to be the way things are. And so we push against it. Anger has all of those different forms. Fear, guilt, impatience, disappointment. It's easy, really, for us to be quite confused about aversion or anger. It's easy to be confused about overcoming fear of anger and being overwhelmed by anger. It's certainly true that we need to be able to open to everything that we're feeling. And if something is defined as unacceptable to feel, then it's much more difficult to open to it. To be able to feel it, to acknowledge, to recognize it, it's very important. Or else we engage in a whole range of methods of self-deception to try to pretend it's something else. But to overcome our fear of a state of anger is very different from allowing it to rule us so that we're hurting ourselves or we're hurting others or we're diminished by it. The Buddha described it in this way. He said, anger with its poison source and fevered climax is murderously sweet. And it is. It's murderously sweet. It's definitely satisfying for a while because we feel very powerful. We feel strong. We feel righteous. But often there is a a much longer period of suffering as we face the consequences of our actions, the things we've said, the things we've turned away from, the people we've pushed aside, whatever it might be. And we feel more than anything, I think, how isolating anger is, how, how that pulling back, that separating, that striking out, leaves us feeling quite bereft in the end. In the Buddhist psychology, they talk about it as being like a forest fire which burns up its own support that leaves its host devastated. And like a forest fire, it might leave one very far from where we really want to be. And it's complex, of course, because there's some very, very positive aspects to the energy of the anger. It's not passive for one thing. It is energy. It's very um, different than complacency. It allows us to say no. It allows us to draw boundaries. It allows us to reach for a sense of integrity. And yet, it will burn up its own support. It also has that burning, diluting quality. And so in some ways what we need to do is to be able to look unafraid at the aversion and to use that energy in a way that isn't all tied up with the the burning and the isolation and the striking out against element of the anger. And that way the anger almost becomes a kind of insight When we're lost in it, it's very, very deluding. I had this experience a little while ago, a few years ago, where I was uh, doing email on my computer, and I got an email message from somebody saying, what do you think the problem is with anger? So I wrote back, and I said, well, you know, one problem with anger is that 
when we're lost in it, we tend to put someone in a box. And then that was the end of that correspondence, and I, I kept on doing something else. I got offline, I did something else on my computer. And then something went terribly wrong in the relationship between my computer and my printer, and I got really angry. I was furious. First of all, I was furious at the person who was um, like our computer support person here at the center because he was on vacation. And I, I was furious. I thought, how could he be gone when I need him? Forgetting completely that this is literally true. He was on vacation because I had decided he needed a vacation. And I'd gone to the airport and used my frequent flyer miles to get him a ticket to go somewhere. But it's like I forgot that in the intensity of the anger. How could he not be here when I need him? And then I was really angry at myself. I was down on my hands and knees, like pulling out plugs and pushing in other plugs. And, and I thought, why can't you be the kind of person who can fix this sort of thing? You know, why are you so inept? And you know, meanwhile, I fixed it, but I hardly even noticed that I fixed it, you know, because I was so angry at myself for not being the kind of person who could fix it. And, <laughs> you know, and then I finally, I fixed it. I got back up on my chair, and I was doing my thing, whatever it was, and then I decided after a while to get back online. So I went back online, and there was my original correspondent who wrote back and said, who had written back and said, I don't understand what you mean by saying when we're really lost in anger, we just put people in a box. <laughs> So I wrote back to him and I said, well, this is what I just did. <laughs> you know, I put this other person in a box as the great deserter, you know, the one who wasn't there when I needed him. And I put myself in a box as the one who's, who's just incapable of doing so much in the world. It's that, it's that kind of, of closed-in quality that is so painful about anger and removes us from really the possibility of change and the incredible complexity and intricacy of life, that people are many things, and we are constantly changing. If you think about the last time you were really afraid, when were you really, really afraid and had your mind skip delightedly through the thoughts, oh, you know, if it doesn't work out this way, it'll work out that way. You know, when do we have a sense of options when we're really lost in fear? We don't. The whole world collapses into one seemingly certain terrible possibility. And so we open. There may be wisdom in the anger. There may be wisdom in the fear. But in order to retrieve that, we need to not get lost in that spiral of contraction so that we can be not just following or tracking that bird, but we can really open and see the sky as well. Then we'll see what happens. Many times when we sit, there is a great deal of anger that arises. There's a great deal of fear that arises as well. Susan talked about it last night when she talked about yogi mind. We get very sensitive in this process. There's a great deal of guilt that arises as well. These are all part of that same aversive tendency. In the Buddhist psychology, there's um, an interesting distinction that can be made between the force of remorse and that of guilt. Remorse being a very clear and honest acknowledgement of some harm that we've done or, um, you know, some time maybe 
we should have spoken out, but we were too afraid, and so we kept silent, or some time when we should have kept silent and we blurted something out. Or These kinds of memories do come in any path of purification. And with remorse, we feel the pain of that because it's like we've broken the fabric of something, some kind of harmony. And then, in effect, we forgive ourselves. We remember the truth of constant change, which means constant possibility. We let go and we move on with some kind of renewed determination not to just do the same old thing again. And so that's considered a really positive state, although painful. And then there's guilt, which is more kind of lacerating self-hatred, where we go over and over and over and over and over and over and over the thing that we did or the thing that we said, and we can't let go. Our minds are just there. And it's, it's not considered very wholesome or or skillful, because it just leaves us drained of any kind of energy to go on and make a difference. But almost inevitably, these kinds of, of thoughts, memories, they will come up. How we relate to them becomes the question of whether we, we can move on or we just go down that spiral of aversion in the form of guilt. One of my favorite stories about that actually happened when um, we were sitting in Burma together, Joseph and I, and the way that the interviews went in Burma would be that you would go up to the front of the room to talk to Saira Upandita about your practice, and the person who was just after you would wait in the back of the room, thereby hearing your whole description or whatever went until it was their turn, and then there was somebody behind them who would hear you know, their whole thing. So Joseph was just in front of me, and so for three months, six days a week, I would listen to the direction of his practice, which is very interesting. One day he went in and he said to Saira Upandita, you know, I had this really uh, difficult memory of something I did maybe... I don't know how long before that. It was like 30 years or something like that, or you know, 25 years before. And, and he said, and it came up out of nowhere, this thing I did 25 years ago, and I was, I'm just filled with sadness about it. And I was sitting there in the back of the room thinking, I wonder what he did. <laughs> you know, it sounds really bad because <laughs> he sounded so morose. <laughs> and and uh, Saira Upandita gave him kind of a description, pretty much like what I just said about the difference between remorse and guilt, and we have to feel those things and then let them go and, and move on. But meanwhile, I'm sitting in the back of the room thinking, I wonder what he did. But I couldn't ask him because we were on a silent retreat. And then uh, we left, many months later, we left Burma together. And I think that very first night in Thailand, in a Bangkok restaurant, we're having dinner. And I said, Joseph, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> that day a few months ago when you were reporting to Saira Upandita and you said you remembered that thing from 25 years ago that was so bad that you did, so hurtful and terrible. What was it? <laughs> and he told me that he, uh, he'd been a student, a high school student, and this, this young girl had had a sweet 16 birthday party coming up and he didn't feel like going, so he didn't go. And then it turned out that not that many people went. 
which of course was a very, you know, sad experience for her. And 25 years later, out of nowhere, it came back. So I told this story once. Um, it happened to be my birthday, and we were teaching together at Spirit Rock. And I, I told this story, and then that night, the staff of the retreat center gave me a birthday party, and Joseph came, and he said, I don't really want to be here. <laughs> he said, I'm really tired. <laughs> I'd much rather be in bed, but <laughs> just in case, you know, <laughs> 25 years from now, it comes back to haunt me. But this is it. These things come, you know, as we, as we keep moving forward. And as with everything, how we relate to them is, is the critical question. So it's grasping aversion, and then classically sleepiness and restlessness get tucked in there. And then doubt is the last of the hindrances. The reason it's a hindrance is that it also tends to have us separate from our experience of the truth of here and now we almost purposefully remove ourselves from the experience so that we can scrutinize it, we can compare it to something else, we can analyze it, and we can judge it. When we're lost in doubt, it's like our minds can't settle anywhere. We're always seeking to compare and assess. And to some degree, of course, doubt is really good. Um, Certainly in the Buddhist tradition, it's considered a tremendous virtue where the Buddha himself said, don't believe anything. Don't believe anything just because I said it, because a great elder has said it, because you've read it in a sacred text. He said, put it into practice. Put it into practice and see for yourself if it's true. So we need to have that kind of edge, which isn't gullible, that isn't just taking things for granted, that isn't just borrowing wisdom from somebody else, but is insisting on both our right and our ability to see the truth for ourselves. That's an appropriate kind of doubt. There's another kind of doubt which is more like skeptical doubt, or these days I think I'd call it cynicism, where we're not checking things out for ourselves. We're not examining and exploring to see what truth may lie there in a certain process. We're holding back. We're stepped aside we're dismissive. Sometimes it's really based on a kind of fear. You know how a child might really want something but not believe they're going to get it. And so they, they disguise that kind of fear with a dismissive attitude, like, I didn't want it anyway. It's not worth having. That's often at the root of this kind of cynicism or holding back. And that doesn't lead us anywhere because we're stuck. We're not able to allow a process to unfold. We can't surrender to it long enough to see if it's something that we can trust or value or not. We've set ourselves apart in isolation. There's a story of a man who came upon the Buddha just subsequent to his enlightenment. They say that the Buddha, who of course is said to have gotten enlightened sitting under a tree, stayed in the area, the vicinity of the tree, for another 49 days. As legend would have it, he did walking meditation for seven days. He um, gazed in gratitude at the tree for seven days for having sheltered him. The various um, things he did 
totaling 49 days. And then he got up and began to walk to a nearby town in order to actually begin teaching. And the first person who came upon him was struck by the Buddha's phenomenal radiance. Like here he is just 49 days after his complete enlightenment, complete freedom of mind. He's amazingly radiant. And the man comes up to him and says, who are you? You know, what are you? Are you a human being? Are you a celestial being? Who are you? And the Buddha said, I'm an awakened one. And the guy said, eh, maybe. And he walked away. <laughs> you know, and it's almost like that, eh, maybe, is not such a bad attitude. I mean, why should we believe it after all? But if you can imagine him sticking around a little bit and saying, oh, yeah, what does it mean to be awakened? You know, how'd you do it? Can I do it? Should I do it? <laughs> you know, those kinds of questions have, have kind of a vital life force to them, which is different than saying, eh, maybe, and walking away. Because then how do we ever learn? How do we allow, ever allow ourselves to be vulnerable to open. Those are the different kinds of doubt. Probably my own strongest experience of doubt was very early on in my practice where my first teacher was a a Burmese teacher who taught Vipassana practice. And after some time, I met a Tibetan teacher whom I also had a tremendous amount of respect for. And then I was quite torn about which of the practices to do so in effect I did neither one whenever I would sit I would think which practice should I do maybe I'll do this one or maybe I'll do that one I don't know this one is probably faster but I don't know look at those people they're kind of far out the people who did those practices you know but but I don't really know them as well as I know these people if I knew them as well as I knew these people I wouldn't like them either you know like (laughs) what are they getting from their practice And, and on and on it was and then what was almost worse was Whenever I was with my Burmese teacher, I would ask him what he thought about Tibetan practice, and he'd spent his entire life studying and and going deep within Burmese practice. And whenever I was with my Tibetan teacher, I'd ask him what he thought about Burmese practice instead of about the thing he had dedicated a lifetime to learning. So I wasn't learning anything from my practice because I wasn't really practicing, and I wasn't learning anything from my teachers because I was insisting on asking them about the things they knew the least about. That was really a state of doubt. It's kind of a classic example of the stuckness of that kind of doubt. And finally, I said to myself, just do something. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment. Just do it. Don't keep holding back, judging, trying to figure it out. Take a risk. Just try. That's the state we need to come to, where we're committed to finding out for ourselves, but we're going to do the process that actually allows that to happen. Probably the most debilitating kind of doubt is doubt in that capacity, feeling that we just can't do it. And yet, that is contrasted to the Buddhist teaching, which says very clearly, we all can do it. Sometimes when people hear about right effort, they think it's, it's laborious, it's dreadful, it's burdensome, it means striving, it means, it means something that's just too hard. 
But really what it means is that there is no special knack and there's no special group of people who are capable of freedom while the rest of us are left out. It means that if we give our hearts over to it, if we practice, if we put in effort, then all of these possibilities become real for us, just as they might have become real for the Buddha, just as they become real for anybody. We can get lost feeling that if we depend on anger for that sense of righteousness, for feeling better than anybody else, for feeling in the know while other people can't see what's going on, then we're going to be ultimately really in a state of suffering. If we depend on sleepiness for the pleasure of just fogging out, not feeling anything, not having to pay attention to anything, again, our lives will be really limited. If we really want happiness, then we need to be able to look at the promise of all these states of grasping and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness and doubt, learn how to see through it, learn how to come to know who we truly are. All of these states will definitely come. There is no doubt about it. Sometimes they come one by one. Sometimes they come in what we call a multiple hindrance attack. That's the nature of the conditioned mind. But if we keep looking at them clearly and seeing them for what they are, we won't get confused. I'll close with this quotation from the Tibetan teachings, um, which says, Beneath the pauper's house there are inexhaustible treasures, but the pauper never realizes this, and the treasures never say, I'm here. <laughs> Likewise, the treasure of our original nature, which is naturally pure, is trapped in ordinary mind, and beings suffer in poverty. So we look right through the things that might confuse us or entrap us, and we will find our actual, true, pure nature. So let's sit together for a few minutes. I'd like to dedicate this sitting to the elimination of greed and hatred, jealousy and fear in this world. 